Mysterious Old Radio Listening Society, a podcast dedicated to suspense, crime, and horror stories from the golden age of radio. I'm Eric. I'm Tim. And I'm Joshua. We love mysterious old-time radio stories, but do they stand the test of time? That's what we're here to find out. Today I chose Ticket to Tangier from the lives of Harry Lime. The series starred Orson Welles as Harry Lime, a role he originated in the 1949 film The Third Man. If you haven't seen the film and have somehow successfully avoided spoilers for the last 72 years, we encourage you to pause this podcast and watch it right now because we're about to spoil the heck out of it. The Third Man was the second cinematic collaboration between novelist Graham Greene and director-producer Carol Reed. The first was the British-produced film The Fallen Idol from 1948, an adaptation of Greene's 1936 short story The Basement Room. Greene co-wrote the screenplay and, in the process, developed a strong creative partnership with Carol Reed. Producer Alexander Corda arranged a second Reed and Green collaboration, this time a co-production with legendary American film producer David O. Selznick. The result was The Third Man. The film was Green's first original screenplay, but the novelist found it, quote, almost impossible to write what he called a film play without first writing a story. According to Green, one must have the sense of more material than one needs to draw on. To that end, Green's first draft of the screenplay was in prose, technically making the film an adaptation of his own unpublished novella. The film tells the story of a struggling American writer, played by Mercury Theater alum Joseph Cotton, who travels to Vienna to accept a job offer from an old friend, Harry Lyme. Upon his arrival, he learns that Lyme was recently killed in a car accident. The bulk of the film deals with the mystery surrounding Lyme's death and the criminal atrocities he may or may not have perpetrated. Austrian musician Anton Karras composed and performed the film's distinctive zither music. As the story goes, Carol Reed would not decide on a tone for the film's score until one evening he attended a production party where Anton Karras was playing. Reed fell in love with the sound of the zither and hired Karras on the spot. After the film's release, the Harry Lime theme became a best-selling record, and Karras used the money he earned to open a nightclub in Vienna, aptly named... The Third Man. The film was a critical and box office hit, winning an Academy Award for Best Cinematography, a BAFTA Award for Best Film, and the Grand Prize at Cannes. Wells, in particular, was singled out for his iconic performance as Harry Lime, a role that was given to him by Carol Reed over the objections of American producer Selznick, who preferred Cary Grant for the role, dismissing Wells as box office poison. Although Wells did nothing to hurt the box office, he did present challenges behind the scenes. He arrived two weeks late to his first day of filming and famously refused to climb into the Vienna sewers for the film's climactic chase scene. Reed was forced to use a body double for wide shots and built a sanitary replica of the sewers for Wells' close-ups. 
This was not a particularly fruitful period in Wells' career. His strained relationship with Hollywood led him to a self-imposed exile in Europe. Wells was not known for his frugality and soon found himself in enough financial hardship that when the third man's producers offered him the choice between an upfront salary or a percentage of the film's profits, Wells took the former, a decision he would later regret. In 1951, radio and film producer Harry Allen Towers offered Wells a chance to regain some of the property passed up. Towers, along with his mother Margaret Miller Towers, were the founders of Towers of London, a company that specialized in producing radio shows for global syndication. Towers offered Wells a three-series contract, including The Adventures of Harry Lyme, later renamed The Lives of Harry Lyme. This series was ostensibly a prequel to The Third Man, detailing earlier events in Lyme's life of crime. The other two Towers-produced series were The Black Museum, hosted and narrated by Wells, and Sherlock Holmes, starring John Gielgud as Holmes, with Wells as Moriarty. There is strong evidence to suggest Wells wrote or at least co-wrote many episodes of the lives of Harry Lyme, including Ticket to Tangier. As you're about to hear, the tonal differences between the film and radio scripts are stark. The Harry Lyme of the Third Man was portrayed as a callous, opportunistic criminal who cared little for human life. In the radio series, his rough edges have been softened somewhat. While still an anti-hero, radio's Harry Lyme has much more of Wells' mischievous charm and much less of the murderous sociopathy of Green's original character. The Lives of Harry Lyme ran for 52 episodes, but didn't end there. In 1955, three years after the end of the radio series, Wells adapted several of the Harry Lyme scripts into a French-Spanish-Swiss co-produced film, Mr. Arkadin. Like most of Wells' films, the production was a tumultuous one, resulting in five different edits released in Wells' lifetime, and a sixth final edit released in 2006 as part of the Criterion DVD collection. And now, let's listen to A Ticket to Tangier from The Lives of Harry Lyme. First broadcast August 24th, 1951. It's late at night, and a chill has set in. You're alone, and the only light you see is coming from an antique radio. Listen to the sounds coming from the speaker, listen to the music, and listen to the voices. Presenting Orson Welles as the third man. The Lives of Harry Lyme. The fabulous stories of the immortal character originally created in the motion picture The Third Man with zither music by Anton Karras. That was the shot that killed Harry Lyme. He died in a sewer beneath Vienna. As those of you know who saw the movie The Third Man. Yes, that was the end of Harry Lyme. But it was not the beginning. Harry Lyme had many lives. And I can recount all of them. How do I know? It's very simple. Because my name is Harry Lyme. I was down on my luck 
way down, scraping the bottom. A couple of deals had fallen through, and I found myself in Paris with a lot of time on my hands and only the price of a beer in my pocket. I was spending my time and the money at Fouquet's. Not because the beer is any cheaper at Fouquet's, but because when you meet a nicer class of people, and besides, they let you read the newspapers free. So I was reading a newspaper, and I came on the advertisement. One of those classified ads in the personal column was addressed to Harry Lyme. Harry Lyme being me, I read on with some interest. There was no signature, no address. Mr. Harry Lyme, it said, will find a business opportunity of an extremely profitable nature in the city of Tangier. Now, I might have thought this was one of the boys trying to hustle me out of Paris or just trying to be funny, except that the advertisement mentioned the city of Tangier. Now, why Tangier? There are very few places in the world I haven't been to, and Tangier just happened at the time to be one of them. Also, Tangier, as everybody knows, is full of money, and I, I couldn't imagine anybody wanting to send me there right in the heart of the free gold area where every second address is a bank and every second person's an international operator just, just for a gag. Probably more chances in Tangier to grab a fast buck than you'll find in the world today. So I'm inclined to take the ad a little seriously. Of course, it might have been a police trap. There are cops in countries all over the globe busy looking for me. Some of them are just sharp enough to try to pull me in on a queer come on like that. But the truth is that one of the only cities left where they don't happen to want me for what's known as questioning is the port of Tangier. That's what sold me. There's just one complication. My beer was finished, and with it, my financial resources. How to raise the price of the ticket. as Harry Lyme, the third man, in today's story, Ticket to Tangier. While I was brooding about how to raise the price of the ticket to Tangier, my eye happened to wander down the personal column of the newspaper, and a little below the advertisement addressed to me was this. Gentleman traveling to Tangier. A visit to the desk of the porter at the Lancaster Hotel on Rue de Berry will repay any businessman planning a visit to Tangier who can whistle a certain tune. Well, of course, that didn't have to be Harry Lyme, but there's a song I'm fond of, one I've been whistling for years. Anybody who knew about me might know about that song anyway. What could I lose? I went over to the hotel and approached the concierge. Uh, bonjour. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, monsieur. Uh, what can I do for you? Well, I don't quite know that you can do anything. You happen to read the Paris edition of the Herald Tribune? Uh, no, monsieur. I prefer to follow the news in my own language, but we have copies of the paper you mentioned for sale. Uh, no, 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 thanks. I've seen it. Perhaps monsieur is calling for someone in the hotel, uh, one of the guests. Whom shall I announce? Uh, Harry Lyme. Perhaps I should have asked you first who it is you are coming to see. Now, that I couldn't tell you. Just tell me this. Do you like to whistle... 
I am a lover of music, monsieur, but I do not whistle. No. As a young lad, however, in the orchestra of my school, I was considered quite proficient on the bassoon. Uh, well, try this on your bassoon. Ah, yes, of course. I, I have something for you, Mr. Lyle, here. Oh, thanks. Thanks very much. Yes, it's addressed to me, all right, but that's all there is on the envelope, just my name. I wonder, would it be asking too much if I asked you to tell me who this is from? Monsieur, it would be asking too much. Oh, okay, okay, old man. Thanks, anyway. I wish I could give you something for your trouble, but I forgot my wallet this morning. Uh, that was anticipated, monsieur. Uh, what do you mean? Uh, everything, monsieur, has been taken care of. Everything? Uh, yes, monsieur. That is the word, I believe. Everything. In the envelope was an airline ticket for Tangier, 50,000 francs in nice fresh notes, and the following letter. My dear Mr. Lyme, when you arrive in Tangier, go immediately to the El Mirador Hotel... Or a suite is reserved for you. After you've dined, go to a cabaret called the Kabbalah. Wait there for instructions. Excuse me, Monsieur. Uh, uh, oh, yes, Porter. Is anything wrong? Uh, nothing is wrong, Monsieur, but it is 2.45, and your plane leaves early at 3.15. Oh, okay, old man, okay. I'm on my way. Just uh, call me a cab, oh, would no you please? No need for that, Monsieur. A limousine has been ordered for you. It is waiting at the door. <laughs> Very pleasant trip with a very, a uh, very, very attractive hostess on board. Are you quite comfortable, Mr. Lyle? Oh, yes, I'm, I'm fine, thanks. Isn't there anything you like? Well, I'd like to know what you're doing tonight after we land. I mean, wouldn't you like some more coffee or maybe a pillow? I know what you mean, and you know what I meant. Tangier is a very interesting city. First there's the Arabs and the Caspar and all that, and then there's the modern European city. It's an international port, of course, with 14 different countries in control, but... A, of course, you know that. Yes, yes, I've heard tell. I guess you're making fun of me. You're a businessman. You've probably been to Tangier many times. Well, let me take that up point by point. I'm not a businessman. I've never been to Tangier, and I wouldn't dream of making fun of you. Just answer me one question. I go back on the return flight at six in the morning, Mr. Lyon, and I'm sleeping. You haven't answered the question. Besides, my name isn't Mr. Lyon. Oh, that's what it says on the manifest. My name is Harry. Have you ever been to a nightclub in Tangier called the Kabbalah? Oh, yes, I have. You have what? Yes, I have had it. Is it a nice nightclub? It's the best in town. That's good. Glad you like it. I've reserved a table for us, okay? Pass me your safety belt. We're coming in. Outside of Havana, I ever danced with who knows anything at all about the Roomba. I learned it in Havana. That almost explains it. What do you mean, almost? Okay, you learned to dance in Havana, and so do lots of other people. Okay, you're a hostess on an airline. You're very good looking, and there are lots of good looking hostesses that dance the Roomba, but they don't dance that well. And none of them look this beautiful. No, I, I don't know what I mean by almost, but really, you know, you're almost too good to be true. No, I'm not so good. That's good. You don't even know my name. Yes, I do. I have a sign on the door of the cockpit, the plane that says Captain T.R. Stevenson, co-pilot J. O'Brady, air hostess P. Smith. So that's your name, isn't it? P. Smith. May I call you P? P is for Patsy. Okay, we'll settle for that. Shall we sit down? 
That champagne ought to be cold enough by now. It's awfully close in here. Why don't we forget the champagne and take a walk outside? Oh, wonderful. I'll just pay the check. Uh, don't bother. It's been taken care of. What do you mean? The check has been paid. Now, oh, look, look here, old girl. We, we can't have that. You're my guest, remember. Besides, I'm the male in the party, and I have my pride. No, I'm sorry, Harry. It's all taken care of. Come on. Good night, Mr. Good night. Good night, Monsieur. Good night. Good night. Uh, Patsy, I'm going to take something back. What's that, Harry? One little word. What's the word? Almost. I don't understand you. Well, I used it describing you, but it doesn't fit. The word almost could never be applied to you. Whatever you are, that's what you are completely. You couldn't be almost anything. You're wrong, Harry. Almost is just the word for me. Among other things, I'm almost very rich. You must be if you treat all your boyfriends to champagne. Mm, you're a special case. We won't argue about that, Patsy. I'm a special case, but... What's an airline hostess get paid? Enough to treat her boyfriends to champagne, even the special cases like me? No, no, Pat, it doesn't make sense. You say you're rich. I said I'm almost rich. Well, then you must be almost stupid. What do you mean? Well, if I was almost rich, I wouldn't be working for my living at all. I wouldn't be found on an airplane unless I wanted to get someplace. I said I was almost rich, Harry, and that's what I meant. It doesn't mean I've little money or enough money. It means I have to work for my living. I took this job to pay the rent and... Also because it brings me twice a week to Tangier. What do you like about Tangier? A lot of international lawyers and private banks with streets full of American cars and grimy characters in nightshirts. Not very beautiful. As far as I can see, it's a kind of Switzerland with Arabs. No, but it is beautiful, Harry, if you know the right places. Let me show you. Right. Taxi! You know the Villa Mughetti? The Villa Mughetti? Ah, oh, yes, Mademoiselle. Mademoiselle means the great palace on the hill. I know it well. Good. Get in, Harry. I'm going to show you how beautiful Tangier can be. The cab twisted and turned its tortuous way through the native court, and then pretty soon we were out in the country. We were climbing steadily, I noticed, and passing beautiful villas, homes of rich expatriates who come to live in this strange little international settlement of Tangier, where you don't even have to register with your consulate and... Nobody pays any income taxes at all. I think I neglected to mention that Patsy was beautiful. And if I did, believe me, I was understating the situation. She had gray eyes and that clear, powdery gold hair that makes you think of the ashes of angels' wings. I've known an awful lot of girls, but none of them I've ever laid eyes on would have given Patsy a worried moment. There may be better-looking airplane hostesses, but if there are, they're working for airlines on another planet. As we climbed up to the moon-bright hills of Tangier, I forgot completely the strange business which had brought me there, the advertisement in the paper, the airline ticket, and all the rest of it. I didn't care why I'd been sent for the Tangier. I didn't care who'd done it or what he wanted from me. I adore kissing you. You do it very well. But we've come to our destination. Oh, so we have. Anyway, the cab stopped. When did that happen? About five minutes ago. Where are we? Well, there's the bay below us. Oh, very pretty it looks, too, with all the lights and moon on the water. No, not, not now, Harry. Please. I'm very impatient. Now let's get out. Why, it's nice in here. It's nicer in the house. And that enormous place? Mm -hmm. 
Well, you're in some kind of private mansion. It must be. It sure would be welcome. Here, you take the key. The key? You mean... That's what I mean. You're my guest. Yes, but, but how? You've been my guest all along. Gentleman traveling to Tangier, a visit to the desk. But I, what, what do you, you mean? You whistled a tune, didn't you? Well, how do you know about it? I had a friend once who told me how fond you've always been of no, that music. No, I mean, how do you know about the ad in the paper? I ought to know. I paid for it. And my plane ticket. I got a reduction from the airline. Come in, Harry. Here's a flashlight. I've got something to show you. Orson Welles returns in just a moment as the third man. Wells, as the third man, continues with today's story, Ticket to Tangier. I followed Patsy into the house. It was a huge place, full of heavy chandeliers and pompous furniture, most of which are pretty spooky looking because they're covered with dust cloths. Obviously, the place hadn't been lived in for many months, but who was it who had lived here? Who was it that built this unlikely palace on a hill overlooking the harbor of Tangier? Above all, why had I been brought here? Just who was P. Smith, air hostess, and what did she expect me to do about it? We made a tour of several chambers before I even started to get any answers. This way, Harry. Oh. Where are we now? This used to be a ballroom. Close the curtains, then we'll turn on the lights. Okay. You're sure they're tight shot all round? We don't want the police to come and start asking questions. You can say that again, honey. What have the cops got to do with you? Nothing yet. I'll turn on the switch. See that? Hmm? I see a piano. About 30 gilt chairs, a big rolled-up carpet, all very splendid and grand. But which particular item am I supposed to admire? The carpet. I'm not a connoisseur, Patsy, so if you brought me here to get an appraisal, I'm afraid we're both wasting our time. Nothing about carpets. Do you know about heroin? Uh, yes. Heroin is a drug. It is nasty and habit-forming, and its sale is controlled by international law. Go on. Tell me more. I don't know any more about heroin. Not anything to speak of. I don't use drugs, Miss Smith. But you sell them. I just told you that the sale of heroin is controlled by law. Are you suggesting... I'm suggesting that there isn't much you don't know about breaking the law. Any law. <laughs> You've got a point there. I won't try to deny that my knowledge of the subject isn't fairly extensive. Why do you think I sent for you? Why do you think I brought you here? You're Harry Lyme, aren't you? 
Now, stop kidding for a minute and let's get down to well, business. First of all, I think you'd better answer a few questions, Miss P. Smith, air hostess. That isn't necessary. Maybe not, sweetheart, but I'm the curious type. I like the facts before I take on a job, all of them. First of all, what's your racket? I haven't any racket. I'm an airline hostess. Yes, but why? Because it's a good job. Yes, and because the run takes you to Tangier, am I right? That's partly right, yes, but listen... What's your real name? What's it to you? We'll play it my way, sweetheart, and we aren't playing it at all. Must need me awful bad to take all this trouble to look me up and move me. If you need me, you're going to cooperate. We'll start off with your real name and go on from there. Did you ever hear of a man named Mugetti? Mugetti? Rico Mugetti? Mm-hmm. Yes, I thought the name of this place was familiar. I met Rico once in Marseille. Another time in Casablanca. He comes from Corsica, isn't that right? He came from Corsica. You mean he's dead? Yes. I was his wife. Oh, I'm sorry. There's no need to be sorry for me. I killed Rico myself. Then I'm sorry for Rico. He wasn't a nice man, Harry. No, I guess he wasn't. I remember now I once saw him blind a man with a broken wine glass. You're right, Rico wasn't a very nice man, but he was uh, careless. How do you mean, careless? With his wives, anyway. A man has to watch himself when he starts playing with wives. Sometimes they're loaded. Why don't you stop kidding just for a minute? What am I supposed to do? After all, there are only so many alternatives. I can make a joke about what you just told me or congratulate you or hand you to the cops. And now I think it's better if we treat it as a joke. So this is the notorious Harry Lyme, the man no country can hold and who stops at nothing. You know what? I think you're actually shocked. Maybe I'm not Harry Lyme at all. After all, an awful lot of people can whistle that song. You'd better be. I'd better be what, love boat? The original Harry Lyme? Not a facsimile? He doesn't like murder, Mrs. Mugetti. You say he stops at nothing. Well, believe you me, he stops at that. A, it's messy. B, it's silly. And C, there's no profit in it. Besides, Harry Lyme's mother always told him not to go around killing people. She said it wasn't nice. You don't know the facts in the case, Harry. I was justified. I'll have to take my word for it. I guess I will at that. And now, Mrs. Mugetti, if you don't mind, why have you brought me all the way to Africa to this empty house? You say there's a lot of heroin in that rug. Do I take your word for that? You don't have to. You can look for yourself. I told you before, honey, I don't know anything about dope. You know people who do, don't you? People in Paris, in London, in New York. Not intimately. But you know how the drug traffic works. I don't. For something new for Rico, some kind of big haul. He must have had a partner because he wouldn't have known how to dispose of it. It wasn't his line at all. It isn't mine either, honey. I keep telling you that. How do you know it's so valuable? He told me. I've been keeping it here in the house for months now. This airline job I have is perfect for smuggling the stuff, but I don't know who to take it to. I don't know what towns pay the best price. I don't know the names of the agents. Rico kept me away from that kind of thing. All I can remember was hearing him talk about you. You've got to help me, Harry. What about the police? They don't know it's here. I don't think they even know about the house, at least... There isn't anything against him in Tangier. I mean about you. Both you killed him, didn't you? How do the cops feel about that? They don't suspect me. There's no reason why they should. I had a good alibi. I wasn't even in town. You must tell me how you did that sometime. So you can blackmail me? No, thanks, Harry. Let's keep our relationship on a nice, clean business level. Now, that's the way I like to hear you talk. Who are you? You talk about that later, Madame Mugetti. Now, I think it would be easier all around if you and Mr. Lyme put your hands in the air. Not too high. Just shoulder level, huh? That's right. This is a very efficient gun I'm holding. I have a good mark. How did you get in? I hate to tell you, Madame Bugetti, the explanation is so banal. Through the door. You left it open. Now then, where's the heroin? Uh, just a minute. Yes, Mr. Lyon? You seem to know my name, monsieur, but I'm afraid you have the advantage. It doesn't matter. I was... Uh... Shall we say a business associate of this widow's lady's husband? Okay, don't tell me. Let me guess. 
You began in Indochina. You served three years in a penal colony in Brazil. They used to call you the doctor, am I right? I have a doctor's degree. Dr. Bessie, that's your name. Uh, what a detective you would make, Mr. I have a good memory, Dr. Bessie, and I'm a professional collector of information. You will find the heroin in the piano. In, in the piano? Yeah. This is probably a trick, Mr. Lyme. Suppose you go to the piano and extract the heroin yourself. Uh, don't be silly, old man. It would be very simple for me to extract a revolver from the piano. I think it would be unpleasant for both of us if there was any shooting. There must be police in the neighborhood. I'd much prefer you to find your dope and leave quietly. I'm a peace-loving man. Very well. I'll look for myself. I'm keeping my eye on you, line. Now then. Wait a minute. There is nothing here. What have you... Put up your hands, Bessie. I'm warning you. I'll shoot if you don't. What you did? Well, well, very quick, I must say. Congratulations. Strange. He said he was a good shot. Must have been boasting. He should have kept his eyes on both of us, and nobody could do that. Is he dead? I wouldn't know, Mrs. Mugetti. I haven't asked him. He looks that way. Have you any plans? Yes, we'd better get out of here. Now, isn't that funny? That's just what I was going to suggest. Take the heroin. You mm -hmm. can carry it just as it is in the rug. No, thanks. I have a bad back, and I hate to stoop over. Why don't we just leave it where it is? And let the cops find it and give up $100,000 worth of dough, you crazy? Not crazy enough to argue with you as long as you're holding that gun, Patsy, but... What's that? Well, what do you think? Maybe it's the police. Either that or it's New Year's Eve. Douse the lights on. Right. Okay, and now? That's much better. Why, you... you... We've got darkness and I've got the you gun. give it back to me. You're too impulsive for firearms, Mrs. Mugetti. I'm keeping the gun. The cops! Shut the here. cops. Your husband built a nice big house, but it's getting a bit overcrowded. If you don't mind the suggestion, I think we'd better scram just two feet ahead of me, Mrs. Mugetti. Don't try anything funny. You Keep dirty. your seatbelt fastened. We're coming in. <laughs> way out through the garden. The cops were all over the place, and after a while it was clear that our only hope was in separating. Patsy! Patsy, you go through the shrubbery. Keep straight on down the field till you get to town. You can't, Mr. Just keep going down the road. What about you? I'll make out all right. Yes, but what about the heroine? Heroine? There isn't any heroine in this story, Mrs. Mugetti. Just a hero. That's a joke, honey. You can laugh at it later when you catch your plane to Dakar. <laughs> returns in just a moment. And now, Harry Lyme. Of course, they got her. They took her off the plane on the return round to Paris. Somebody tipped off the police about that murder. It's what you might call the 
wages of lying. It's another joke, but you don't have to laugh at it. I'll do the laughing. You see, what Patsy didn't know was that I had picked up the rug in the darkness and hid it under a bush just outside the window. I came back later and corrected it. Of course, the word was out about Rico's big consignment and didn't have any trouble getting a good price in Marseille the next week. But honestly, I don't approve of drugs. That's why I threw the original stuff into the Bay of Tangier and delivered to the gangsters seven nicely wrapped packages of confectioner's sugar. They tell me you can get the habit for sugar, too, but my conscience is clear, all except for one thing, that that little prayer rug it was wrapped in. I know it didn't belong to me, but it looks very nice here in front of the tea table, don't you think so? Uh, will you have milk or lemon with your tea? And how much sugar? This is the very best brand, you know. A syndicate of desperate gangsters paid me $50,000 for only seven packages of the same quality. Ticket to Tangier from the Lives of Harry Lime here on the Mysterious Old Radio Listening Society podcast. Once again, I'm Eric. I'm Tim. And I'm Joshua. And Joshua brought that to the table for us this week for the podcast as we are pretty much celebrating the birthday of Orson Welles. Yay. Happy birthday, Orson Welles. Too bad you're dead. (laughs) (laughs) Uh uh, I rewatched The Third Man. I had not seen it in a very long time, and I'd forgotten how wonderful it is. So it was really quite a beautiful, wonderful night of like, yay, I got to watch Third Man again, and that was really cool. Anyway, so then um, my notes from this radio episode were all covered in our intro. And one of them being, wow, they really softened this character. You know, because I don't do research. I just sit down and read what Joshua writes. And so <laughs> that was my first 
take on this is Harry Lyme is a terrible human being. He's killing babies. That's the character in Third Man. Hey, here's a story about a man that kills babies. <laughs> well, <laughs> on our Facebook group, uh, we had a little discussion uh, before recording this podcast about specifically the Third Man. And one of our listeners, Jeffrey, actually suggested that the name of this series should have been Things Harry Did Before He Poisoned Children. <laughs> <laughs> Um, an interesting take that I had on this with my wife, Shannon, as we watched it together, was if this is a prequel, right, and he's rewritten him to have some conscience, throwing the heroin in the river and not letting heroin get out into the general public, he, he had a conscience. So we know that from this, canon-wise, that at some point Harry Lyme had a conscience. And then when, by the time you get to the movie, which is then his death, he had somehow lost his conscience, Right. What's fascinating that's never been really delved into and should be is what happened? Where was the moment that he went from, in this canon, a man with a little bit of character and conscience to screw it? Like, what happened to him that he went, I'm going to go kill babies? I mean, this is just purely my head canon, but I literally cannot accept this story we listened to as being like, that is the truth of this narrative. Like, no, he cut that heroin with with confectioner's sugar and sold it. That's what he did. <laughs> oh, I have a big ranting theory about all this because... <laughs> Good. Good, because I'm out of notes. <laughs> I think it's a very modern idea to think of this as a prequel that shows the arc or downward spiral of Harry Lyme's character. This is not old-time radio's answer to Breaking Bad or Better Call Saul. I think... This was ostensibly a prequel because it was a way for Orson Welles to milk more money out of the third man and the popularity of his character. I think it's fun, and I'm glad Harry Lyme exists. Um, but the reason it's hard to see it as this trajectory is because not only is there inconsistency between Harry Lyme as portrayed in the radio series and Harry Lyme portrayed in the third man film, if you listen to the entirety of the series, I haven't listened to all of it, but I've listened to about half of it, it has wild inconsistencies in Lime's characterization from episode to episode. Oh. And I think that's largely what makes the series really enjoyable to listen to, is you never know what Lime you're going to get. Sometimes he is like a ruthlessly callous con man. He's sometimes like a comical rogue. There are pure satire comedy episodes of this series. Sometimes he's just an overconfident bumbler who absolutely fails at everything and barely escapes with his life at the end. Or in today's episode, he is the master criminal with a code of honor. So there are at least, to my mind, four different takes on Harry Lyme, which supports what Tim was saying is that Harry Lyme is essentially an, an unreliable narrator. We cannot really believe anything he is saying. And then, and I'll almost be done with my big rant that only <laughs> talks about the character in contrast to the third man and the intro, because I'm fascinated by the intro. It's got that great zither music and then the gunshot that kills him in the sewers in Vienna. Spoiler. Yes, I warned you. Um, <laughs> but in the series, it says that was the shot that killed Harry Lime. He died in a sewer beneath Vienna. And he says, Harry Lime had many line lives. I can recount all of them. How do I know? Very simple, because my name is Harry Lime. Um, and I might be going out on a limb here, but I think it leaves the timeline 
really open to not just interpretation, but also suggests we should maybe listen to the entire series as this meta-narrative, because just contained in there are all sorts of contradictions in that opening. Who exactly is narrating it? Is it Harry Lyme, who escaped his second burial at the end of The Third Man, because he's speaking in the present tense and has knowledge of his own death, suggesting the events of the film happened in his past, but he also states the gunshot was the end of Harry Lyme, or is it the narrator Orson Welles, the actor intentionally breaking the fourth wall who he, then that means he acknowledges the third man is a real world film that exists outside the narrative of the radio series but he also says my name is harry lime um, so it could be any of those things and in reality what it probably is is just sloppiness on the writer's part and they didn't <laughs> care they were just having fun and it was a quick and easy way to make money but in retrospect it's really really fun I mean, and then you have the added layer in this episode where his favorite song is the Harry Lime theme. So at, at the very least, Anton Karras exists in the fictional world of Harry Lime as well. So, I mean, this is just a, a playground for nerdery. There's so many possible layers to this, but I can't help but thinking, Joshua, it's just sloppy and lazy and not anything that they planned out that way? I think sloppy is probably, I use too strong of a word because I think Orson Welles wants to have as much fun and he doesn't care, which is different from sloppy. I mean, (laughs) I guess not caring and sloppy can be connected, but I think it's a fun playground he created and he wasn't too concerned about whether it all adds up or not at the end of the day. And I think you're also right that we have a different relationship with canon in today's world than they did then. We're, we're very adamant about our canon. Uh, the last thing I want to say is, you know, the different types of Harry Limes that showed up in different episodes. I'm guessing that was based largely on the different Orson Welles that showed up. <laughs> well, it certainly was for the ones he wrote, but there were a lot of them that he didn't have anything to do with. And I think what you said still stands. I think really on any given episode, Harry Lyme was the character that the writer needed him to be to tell the story they wanted to tell. And that's what was important to them is we're going to tell the story we want to tell. If it's more fun this episode to have him be a a fool who gets taken, then we're going to do it that way. If it's more fun to have him this master criminal, then that's what we're going to do this week. And the continuity is Orson Welles because his performance and his charm strings it all together. I don't have a rant, but I have some disassociated gibbering. So I'll I'll dive into that. Uh, One, I have a fascinating theory about canon that just – so like Superman. If you do Superman's story right now, you have to have X-ray vision, kryptonite, flying, and none of those things he started with. Just at some point in the storytelling, they slapped it on him and like, yes, that is Superman, people said collectively. And sometimes they slap something on him and like, nope, that is not Superman and it doesn't stick. Becomes apocrypha. Yeah, it's a weird concept that fans just agree or don't agree of. This change sounds plausible to us, and this doesn't. The mere fact that they gave him the ability to fly around the world really fast and change time and go backwards in time is a huge flaw from that movie, because why don't you just start there? That's what you should do every (laughs) single problem. My theory is that if fans don't accept that, then he can't do it. It was just a mistake that one movie did. Right. Uh, So that's... Jibber one. <laughs> Jibber two, and this is more on point. Oh, it's from my favorite Dr. Seuss book, Jibber one and Jibber two. <laughs> <laughs> this is my hurtful sounding but genuinely uh, affectionate 
uh, sort of theme of listening to this episode made me like the third man even more. Mm. And, and not so much in like, oh, because this was bad and I appreciate it. Um, I had not seen the third man before. I just watched it in the last, last week here. Oh. And and I was like, okay, I see the good and some parts of that. But uh, it really made me appreciate the character of Harry Lyme from the movie of how carefully crafted a sociopath he was. Yeah. So the absence of that careful crafting in the story made me really appreciate it in The Third Man. And the third thing was the comparison I couldn't stop drawing when I was listening to the uh, the radio show was James Bond. I don't know why I was expecting, I guess, yes, we agree with you, Tim. <laughs> well, um, <laughs> But it, it's this attraction revulsion of he is cool, he's fun, but he's also kind of a horrible person. I think the difference is James Bond was not intended to be disliked in the time he was created and written, and uh, the passage of time has made him less likable. I don't think that was Ian Fleming's original intent. He was a damaged or broken character, but the way time has marched on, he now looks pretty awful to us, whereas I do think Harry Lyme was intended from the get-go, obviously, right. based on the Third Man film, to be an anti-hero, just a, a slightly gentler one than he was in the film, where he wasn't an anti-hero, he was a baddie. And even in various James Bond usages, appearances, like he got married. There are times when he is, you see him as a human being, that he just has to turn it off sometimes to deal with horrible spies. There is no point in the history of humanity where killing babies was okay. So, I, yeah. I can't believe I just had the impulse of like, well, let me think. <laughs> that, that tells you a lot about the culture we're in right now. It's like, I want to argue with you. Right. <laughs> There's an interesting thing that happens. I think, I'm going to say this. I think it happens to everybody when they watch The Third Man. There comes a point, despite all that despicability, which I don't know if it's a word, but I just made it up. Despite <laughs> all of that, you find yourself going, I hope he gets away. Or is that just me? Does do you guys want him to get caught? Or That's the trick of the third man I think is great. It's not that you love him so much. It's the other two main characters that, yes, they suffer at his hands and it's awful, but they're also, they're his friends. They love him. For as much as they're tortured by him, they want him to get away. Uh, Wells' performance is so compelling and he is so charming and likable. It's not just Joseph Cotton character who needs the trip to the children's hospital we as the viewer need that trip to yeah. truly believe that harry lime is not just the roguish con man that he appears that he is a monster because when i was watching it that was my complaint initially of like why i'm spending so much time with you like i know it's orson wells i know he's there let's just get to it but then tricky graham green is like he's making me love these two characters I didn't know it was Orson Welles till the cat got to his feet. And I went, oh, that's Harry Lyme. Yeah, this is one of my favorite movies of all time. I'm not alone in that. Many people share <laughs> that feeling. But I think it is pretty much flawless. I love it to death. And to just add one more thing to your love-hate relationship with Harry Lyme, I think that is the brilliance of casting Orson Welles. And Carol Reed was absolutely right. Because you need an actor who is charming, but don't love so much that you can also believe as a bastard. That's why Cary Grant would have been an absolute disaster. You would have loved him, but you would have never, 
ever believed in a million years that Cary Grant... Gonna throw Joseph Cotton out of a Ferris wheel. Yeah, or selling <laughs> poisonous penicillin to a children's hospital. Uh, yeah, so Wells is that yeah. just walks that fine line. He is a lesser version of Harry Lyme, right? He's <laughs> this sort of exactly charming right. disaster. <laughs> That's what I was gonna say, Joshua, is that it's... It's not just a love-hate relationship with Harry Lyme. You've cast an actor that the world has a love-hate relationship with. At least Hollywood does. Well, I love Orson Welles. I also hate Orson Welles. Like, <laughs> my love-hate is very well-documented in 214 episodes of this podcast. I don't understand how you can hate him as just the recipient of his work. I understand if you had to work with him. <laughs> right? but, but he's gone and we are just an audience for the best of Orson Welles we as actors suffer his legacy <laughs> <laughs> there are some of his performances act two war of the worlds so there are performances of his that I find as a recipient of his work that I go oh god that is so overwrought and so so much and then there are things that he does that I just get that is some of the most brilliant acting I've ever seen, period, that's ever been done. And so that is my love-hate as a recipient. Do you see what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Not just the stories of what it was like to work with him, which are well-documented that he obviously was a giant pain. Just what we said in the beginning intro, none of that shocks me. But do you get that vibe from him even on screen? You know, like, yeah, you're that yeah, guy. Yeah, but I mean, <laughs> in all fairness, at some point someone earns that reputation, which is their fault, but then people just add on right. to it. How many actors do we know who don't have an ounce of fame or very little talent who would be like, yeah, I'll climb down in the sewer in Vienna? I'm sure there's a, there are a lot of actors who would have balked at that. Not me. You, you've worked with <laughs> me. I, I, I would have been down there <laughs> belly flopping. But <laughs> actors across the country like, I'll oh, climb the sewers. <laughs> but I think things like showing up two weeks late to your yeah. first day of filming is more egregious than having problems, particularly if he was surprised by that fact of going down to the sewer. Surprised by the idea that he had to go in the sewers, that's one thing. If he knew full well and then just went, you know what? No, that makes you a jerk face. You know, like <laughs> Viennese gray water is exquisite. <laughs> Every time that they were in the sewer, by the way, my wife says, oh, my God, the smell. That's that's all she could think about was the smell. Um, I will talk about the radio show and the movie at the same time for something I just want to get off my chest. I know that the music in this, people loved it. It changed everything. This was in my notes. This music is going to be too different for Eric. It's not an organ, so Eric's going to hate it. It's not about different. I don't even mind the different. I even appreciate what it brings to a suspenseful scene, not having typical, traditional, suspenseful uh, string music playing, it changes the vibe completely and adds an air of weirdness and foreboding when it's that music. So I agree with the choice of the music, and I think it's brilliant, and I love it. This is all I want to say. I have a level of zither music I can hear before I can't take it anymore. <laughs> the idea of buying a zither album? No. To hear it throughout this entire show or in the movie, I get it. It's a good choice. It works. It works really well. The fact that people went, Zither music's really cool and bought albums is beyond me. Because when this movie's done, I'm like, that's enough Zither music for uh, years. Mm -hmm. 
I went the exact opposite route of hearing it in the movie. I'm like, this is weird. I'm not on board with this. And then listening to, like, I heard it again and again and again and again in the radio show. I'm like, all right. <laughs> I'm conditioned to it now. I'm on board. I And I really see you know, it's a fascinating accompaniment to any kind of scene. Suspenseful, yeah. romantic, chatty. <laughs> <laughs> we may have achieved a personal record for this podcast of how long it is taking us to actually talk about the radio show in question in any depth. I'll throw this out there. This actual show, it's slow, takes a long time to get to something, and what it gets to isn't all that interesting. It's kind of plotting for me. It's more about Orson and his repartee with the young lady, uh, Patty. And I love their dialogue together, and I love those moments, but there's not really much of a story. All right. Thanks for joining us, everybody. (laughs) (laughs) I think that's accurate. I was pretty entertained by the contrived situation that led to, I know only a few very specific details about Harry Lyme and why I would not contact anyone else, but I can only contact him through this convoluted means to make it interesting, but not efficient or useful. Thank God he picked up that free newspaper that day and looked at the want ads. I know. That was lucky. And that she happened to know that he can whistle that one tune. Right. Well, we don't know how long she ran those ads, in all fairness. She could have been (laughs) running those for months. With a car waiting at the hotel day after day. (laughs) I do think it's interesting, though, because she did know that music, and there's a lot of winks. This is, again, to my crazy theory that this is all just this sort of metatextual David Lynch-style dream that Harry Lyme is having. But when he says, hey, I'm not a guy who deals heroin, she goes, are you kidding me? You're Harry Lyme. Like, there's, it has this suggestion that Orson Welles is aware that he is altering the character from the film and, in fact, says, maybe I'm not Harry Lyme at all. After all, a lot of people can whistle that tune. That kind of stuff delights me. Uh, and, Eric, your description of this, uh, like Tim said, is very accurate. But that is what I love about it. It's very character-driven, it's dialogue-driven, it's wit-driven, and I find that really fun. The other detail that I really enjoyed was that she also pretty clearly knew that he was dead broke. Because every step of the way, like, she knew he he would come. She knew she had to pay, she had to tip the hotel guy, and that she had to buy the stuff at the restaurant. Even as he's saying to her, like, you should let me pay. I'm the guy. I should be paying half of this, even though they both know he can't. But I think from a character point of view, whether he was broke or not, Lime would have bit on anything free or more money. From a dramatic point of view, it helps to sell exactly why he took the risks that he did. But I think it works whether he is broke or not from a character point of view. I was more entertained not by the trip to Tangier, but by his insistence, no, oh, let me pay at the restaurant. <laughs> yes. I'm like, well, have at it, big guy. <laughs> <laughs> I think when he got in the car to go to the airport, he should have been throwing babies out the window. <laughs> uh, Joshua, I'm going to say that I agree with you that I do like the dialogue and the witty repartee, and I did enjoy this, but that's the plot The subplot is, hey, how do I get this guy here to help me sell this heroin? That's the subplot. And I want that to be more of the plot because that's more interesting. Uh, But it's not about that. It's about Harry Lime's personality. Uh, It reminded me, this is, again, I think it reminds me of James Bond, of 
It's part of like, oh, go here. Beautiful, exotic locale. Mm, lady, smooch, smooch, smooch. Oh, a little bit of plot. and <laughs> Your poor wife. <laughs> <laughs> Why has Tim not been asked to direct the next James Bond film? He just fundamentally understands it. I got it. He's actually doing the theme music to the next one. It's Smooch, Smooch, Bang, Bang by Tim Duran. <laughs> <It's gonna be laughs> James Bond theme on Zither. <laughs> oh, that was actually what the Zither sounds like in my head. Thank you. <laughs> kind of what the Zither sounds like underwater. I love the line, I haven't any racket. I'm an airline hostess. Just kind of very deadpan. Um <laughs> But the great line of uh, a man has to watch himself when he starts playing with wives. Sometimes they're loaded. It's a real jerky line, and it's a really Orson and Harry Lime <laughs> line. But my favorite is probably when he is talking to the porter at the hotel when he says, well, put this in your bassoon or something along the line. <laughs> The dialogue is all great. I couldn't stop writing it down. And those are jokes, but he also does some really nice plays on dialogue that gets threaded throughout. Um, like there's a whole sequence around the word almost. Yeah. And then there's a nice uh, dialogue bit. I won't recount it all uh, when he is describing Tangier dismissively and he ends up comparing it to Switzerland. That is a, a nice echo of his cuckoo clock line in The Third Man. And I'll be honest, I did not expect Patsy to be the one who was the mastermind behind the personal ad and getting him here. So that twist did surprise me. I was going to say, it was a nice little touch that he picked up her name off of the plane register, the, the little plaque in the plane. It wasn't a plaque. Are there, <laughs> are there any other thoughts before we send it to the vote? I just, the last thing I want to say is it was so hard to pick an episode of this series because you really can't find a representative episode. And I ultimately picked this one because it was the episode they included on the Criterion DVD. And I thought, those guys are smarter than me. <laughs> and I like this. And it was written by Orson Welles, so I'm going with this one. But I mean, I think my favorites are probably the more satirical ones that uh, Orson Welles wrote, which. I didn't think would go down as well, or at least for your first listen to The Adventures of Harry Lyme. So I passed on those. And I thought this was more representative than others. Let's throw it to the vote. I'll start this week. It is of huge historical significance in relation to Orson Welles' story, to the story of the third man. It's definitely not a classic. It's not that compelling in certain ways, but it's very compelling in other ways. I love this episode from a certain angle. Does that make sense? If you approach mm -hmm. it from a certain way, but if you approach from the other way, I don't like it. So not a classic. Stands the test of time. Yeah. Historical significance. Absolutely. In that same ballpark, I, I don't think I would call it a classic. I think it certainly stands the test of time. Wells delivers a great performance and he can really turn a phrase. Um, I just simply cannot accept the plot element of... I threw it in the river and gave them confectioner sugar. Like, no, you did not. <laughs> uh, and with that adjustment in my mind, it's a, a, quite a good episode. <laughs> <laughs> oh, if I believe he is lying to me as the listener at the end, that only makes it better. 
Like when he's <laughs> right. offering us the, the sugar and the tea and suddenly you're sitting right there in the room with Orson Welles. And um, for my vote, I wouldn't call Ticket to Tangier a standalone classic or probably any other episode of the series I've heard. But I do think The Lives of Harry Lyme as a series is definitely a classic. It, the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. The inconsistency, as we already talked about, of Lyme's portrayal and the tonal differences between each script allows the series to be really cozy and formulaic, but also unpredictable in ways that ends up surprising you. And also makes it, to, to talk about its contemporary qualities, very bingeable. And so I really think it stands the test of time in that way. And anti-heroes as protagonists are far more common today than they were back when they made this. I can't think of another old-time radio show that has a, a really distinct criminal that you're supposed to like as the hero. Maybe there is one that I'm forgetting. And just the fact that this is a spin-off prequel radio series from a popular film. That is so contemporary. If there was a Disney Plus in 1951, The Lives of Harry Lyme would be on it. <laughs> and, and most important of all is it features Orson Welles. And I think that is what really makes the series as a whole a classic. Because, final thing I'm going to say, Orson Welles excels as a narrator. It never feels like he is reading a script at all. His delivery nope. is always intimate and impromptu, and it really makes you feel like he's relating this story to you and only you. So that's why I think the series as a whole is a classic. It is just a master class in narration. That is probably Orson Welles' greatest skill. That first-person singular, which was the basis for Mercury Theater in the Air. I was just going to say, you can go back to Fall of the City, War of the Worlds, all of that. He is the master and really great at it. <laughs> You're really great at it. <laughs> Good job, Orson Welles. <laughs> Happy birthday. Happy birthday, Orson. <laughs> All right, Tim, tell him stuff. Hey, go visit ghoulishlights.com. You'll find other episodes of this podcast here. If you're enjoying this, we did a lot of other stuff. You can comment on episodes. You can send us messages. If you have a request of something you'd like us to listen to, send us a message. We'll put it on a list and get to it at some point. <laughs> Um, you can link to social media pages. You can also link to our Threadless store and buy some swag. Or you can go to, uh, Josh was not ready, our Patreon page. Go! <laughs> yes, you can go to patreon.com slash the morals and support this podcast. Because, uh, guys, we're getting old. We need some support. <laughs> not just in our clothing, but actual financial support. Uh, I can't sell these drugs. <laughs> No, seriously, you send us heroin, we'll sell it. <laughs> we have no qualms. Send us fancy sugar, we'll sell that too. Um, but we'd prefer cash. So go to <laughs> patreon.com slash the morals. Uh, we have uh, members-only podcasts. We have a monthly Zoom happy hour where we hang out with our patrons and talk about old-time radio. Uh, we have swag. Um, for a certain tier, we have a quarterly um, mysterious old bedtime stories, which are basically audiobooks of classic uh, public domain crime and horror stories read by your hosts. We're a little behind on that, but we're going to crank out the next one this month. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> help us out to get that next episode by going to patreon.com slash the morals and support the podcast. 
And the Mysterious Old Radio Listening Society is also a theater company, and we do uh, our own adaptations of original broadcasts of classic radio drama, and we do a lot of our own original work on stage. So if you'd like to see us perform live radio dramas, again, adaptations of original broadcasts or original work, just go to ghoulishdelights.com to find out our next performance dates, and you can either come see us if you're in the Minnesota, St. Paul, Minneapolis area, or you can uh, watch us online. And you should also know that you could go to mysteriousoldradiolisteningsociety.com to find out that same information. And you should also know we're really close, everybody. It's May <laughs> 2021, and we're very close to being able to have uh, an audience and being back on stage live. But we're still going to be filming them and putting them up online as well. So uh, for those of you... Like in Ireland, say, <laughs> you aren't going to come see it. Hi, Stuart. <laughs> What's coming up next? Next, we are going to have a listener suggestion, and that is an episode of Lights Out entitled The Author and the Thing. Until then. Look out! Money, Penny. Where's 007? He's on a mission, sir, in Austria. Well, tell him to pull out immediately. Beautiful, exotic locale. Mm, Lady, smooch, smooch, smooch. Oh, James.